Hey, everybody. I'm Jen Garrett, and I've used my Move the Ball system to help thousands of people to think and execute like a pro athlete when it comes to business and branding. Now, I'm on a mission to help you utilize the same tools and strategies to elevate your hustle and get you across the goal line. So get ready. It's time to suit up, to show up, and to move the ball. Hey, everyone. Jen Garrett here. It's great to be back with you for another episode of Move the Ball. If this is your first time listening, welcome. And if you've been a part of the Move the Ball community for quite some time, I'm glad that you're here with us today. And I'm just going to put it out there. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice so that you never miss an episode. And if you're on Facebook, I hope you'll join us in the Move the Ball Facebook group so that you can be a part of the Move the Ball movement and get even more content. All right. So today is going to be another great episode with an awesome guest, someone that I've known for many, many years and got to work with back during my time with GE. So who do we have with us today? Well, inside the huddle and ready to help us to move the ball is Mr. Chris Buffet. Chris is a proven business leader with extensive global experience who currently is the president and CEO of Sharper Shape. Prior to joining Sharper Shape, Chris was the chief operating officer at Sarcos Robotics. And before that, he served as group senior vice president and president of Asia and China for Vestas, the world's leading wind power company. Chris also spent 16 years working for GE, and there he held a variety of senior executive roles, including president of China commercial aircraft programs, president and general manager for GE's global avionics business, as well as a variety of other GE leadership positions in the U.S. and abroad in China. Chris is also a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, and he served as a U.S. Naval officer for 11 years. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, I'm so glad that you're here with us today. I've been really looking forward to our conversation. And as I was preparing for the show, I was just thinking about how I've had quite a bit of Navy representation on the show. And as an Army officer, I was thinking about, well, maybe I need to work on bringing some more Army people on too to mix it up. Last season, I had Scott Wine on the show, uh, who was a fellow Naval Academy grad, played football at Navy, CEO of Polaris at the time that we recorded the show during my path to the draft series that we did back in April, had a couple of Navy football players on the show. And just a few weeks ago, I had Jesse Wuji, who played college football at Navy and also drives for NASCAR. So lots of great Navy people on the show. And I'm excited to have you be a part of that mix. But before we talk about Navy leadership, I am going to say, go Army, be Navy. I have to just <laughs> stick that in there sometimes. <laughs> I heard you say that on the uh, podcast with Jesse as well. And I have to say, yes. go Navy, beat Army. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. It's a friendly rival. We come together the rest of the year. But in December, the things change just a little bit. Yes. But it's fun. Absolutely. So, so let's start off our conversation with your current role with Sharper Shape. Talk to us about you're in a startup environment. Talk to us about what that is like and also what that's like going through this pandemic and how you guys have had to adapt and adjust in this environment. Probably one of the most interesting things was actually coming into a leadership position during the pandemic. So I, I actually started in the new role as the CEO of Sharper Shape in October just last year, about seven months um, into the role and coming into a leadership position when a big part of our team is actually located in Finland. And so I have yet uh, to meet any of our team members in Finland except through video conferences and things like that. So really finding ways to 
connect with a team remotely is, I think, uh, the challenge that all of us have tried to figure out how to adapt to. And so tried all sorts of ways to connect with the team. Uh, we use a, a system called Slack, if you're familiar with that, to communicate internally. Of course, we have all the other usual tools. And so we've created a, like a CEO corner, and I just yeah. try to share as much as I possibly can with the team. And so trying to connect has been something that is, I think we're all still experimenting in, in the COVID environment. The second piece of that is really trying to figure out how to connect and grow the business with customers because we do serve the utility sector. We bring some very advanced technologies to the utility sector and the utilities themselves have had to figure out how to work in this COVID environment while keeping a much higher load of electricity throughout the day when we're working remotely and all of the things that have been occurring. So getting that engagement uh, has been something else we've had to really figure out how to work through as well. So I, I'd say it's been great. It's been exciting. It's been intellectually challenging. And we're making good progress. But it's been a, a unique experience coming into a new leadership role during the pandemic. Well, I like the use of Slack and having your CEO corner. I think that's a great way to stay connected with people as leaders, especially in an environment like this, which is unprecedented. There's been so much change. Staying connected to your people has been an important part of being able to, quote unquote, move the ball and drive things forward. Talk to us about so what were some of the challenges or the uh, the things that you didn't expect as you were navigating through this environment, aside from the connectivity and, and staying remote and trying to stay connected to customers? I think ultimately, one of the things that is exciting, unique, challenging about what we do, the company itself, we go out and we collect large amounts of data. And then we actually have to be able to add context to that data for a utility customer. And so what do we mean by that? If you take as an example here in California, but quite frankly, the entire West Coast, where there's been these large wildfires and many of them in the most recent season were really created through natural means. But whether it started through natural means or vegetation coming in contact with an electrical wire, the utility's ability to respond is a function of how well they understand the system, where they understand their data is, where they understand their assets are. And the other fact is the utilities have been operating for you know, more than 100 years. And so there's many different ways in which they've tackled these things in the past. And we're bringing a new tool set, new methodology to that. We use what's called a digital twin, where we take all that information, we create a digital twin of their physical assets in a cloud-based environment. So now an operator can actually see the totality of their system, but also a technician in the field can interact with that system, say, through an iOS app. And so being able to really change how a utility does business one day at a time is it's intellectually stimulating, it's challenging, and it is great to see because many times we're making a meaningful impact in how they actually protect the communities that we all work in. And so that's been very interesting. But I think this falls into an interesting category of the B2B startup world, I think, is somewhat different than the B2C startup world because you many times we're not trying to get somebody to adapt a new app on their iPhone or on their Android device. We're actually trying to figure out how to make an organization that many times has been in place for decades look at today's technologies and take advantage of that and how they do their day-to-day -day business. 
You used the word change just a few minutes ago. And so as we look to move the ball, that requires us to change our thinking, change our ways of doing business, change our use of technology for improved efficiencies, improved operations, et cetera. And so as you're looking to drive change with your customers, talk to us about what that change management process looks like. How are you trying to influence externally? And then I'd like to also go internally, how you're driving change within your organization to continue to grow as a company too. I think the biggest item that we have to really work through is one of the first arguments if you're an organization, let's, there are many utilities around the world. In many cases, they're covering, well, the entire planet for the most part. And so they all have worked in a certain way for, let's say, decades. And they're delivering power to your house, my house, uh, everyone's house. So there is this aspect of anytime I make a change, I take a risk of disrupting the system. And so the first thing that we have to basically prove is that us engaging in that system is going to make it better, not worse. And so the way that I am working this, both when I talk to customers and I talk internally, is our goal as a company is to ensure that our say-do ratio equals 1.0, is like what I like to say. And that say-do ratio 1.0 has two sides of it. It is what we say we're going to do, and then, of course, what we actually deliver. And so in that dialogue, it becomes very clear when we have those conversations with customers that we agree very clearly on what it is that we're going to do. And then that we work hard to make sure we hit those milestones. Because what happens is if we miss and the utility misses, then somebody's home uh, is not going to have power or could be at risk. And so that's the first thing is making sure we meet that. Then the second thing is really about our job as an organization. If we're bringing new advanced technologies to an industry, in this case, the utility sector, we need to be the experts on the entire solution that we're delivering. So it doesn't mean we have to do everything ourselves, but we should know what is best in class, whether we're doing it or we're doing it together with a partner so that we can bring that to the customer and together we can learn and we can adapt to what they need to serve their customers, which are ultimately consumers like you and I. So, so that's how we work it through on the customer side. Internally, because we're still a relatively small startup, you know, we're less than 100 people, tens of millions of, of revenue, and we're serving big clients. I mean, some of our clients have budgets of in the billions. And so how do we as a company move from a mindset of doing an individual project to being able to serve customers at scale. And once you start talking about scaling in the B2B world, you really have to have the leadership team thinking about how do I create an organization that can perform rather than trying to do it all myself. So these are the types of things that we work on regularly. We're not perfect. Uh, nobody is, but we, we continue to strive to improve in all those areas. Sure. And one thing I wanted to ask you, I mean, part of your career was in big company, mature business like GE. That's where we came to, to know each other and work together. And then you spent the last few years of your career working really in smaller companies, startup types, environments. Can you talk to us about from your experience, what some of the differences are as a senior leader, uh, being in a startup environment versus coming from, you know, a Fortune 50 type of environment? I think there's a number of, of things that you really find out, you know, because you worked with me, but, you know, I've always been on the, the side of how do we create an organization that responds and works together? 
And that hasn't changed. I think success comes through. And we And the way that I like to say it is we take care of our employees. Our employees will take care of our customers. And then ultimately, by doing that well, our shareholders will be taken care of. And I've always firmly believed that what becomes very different is when you move into a startup environment, there's what might sound like an easy statement to get behind, right? What I just said is logical, of course. When every day, and there's only, let's say, 80 people in the company delivering on um, large, large projects, every person within that 80-person group, myself included, has to do something. Uh, there are many times in a GE or a Vestas that if someone wasn't there, in other words, they were on vacation or they had a bad week. When you have large organizations, the organizations in a lot of ways are, quote, self-healing. That ability of depth of bench and that self-healing in a startup isn't there. So you really have to think about how do we start to architect the organization to create that ability for someone else to step in because, you know, we tend to be far more under-resourced or a far less deep bench than you'd have in these large companies. The last piece that I think is very similar is whether it was at GE or at Vestas, and we went out and we won the predominant number of bids that we participated in, the business that we participated in. And the reason is because whether I was overseas in Asia or whether I was in the US, the customers knew that they were going to have, again, that high say-do ratio. That doesn't change in a startup, no matter how big you are. If you don't do what you say you're going to do, eventually people will give up on you. And, and it's just very, very apparent when you're so close and you're a small group and you're trying to, quote, take that hill, move that ball. Everybody has to contribute a lot more a lot of times in a startup. Sure. And a couple of things I want to follow up on. One, you mentioned that in a smaller organization, you know, everybody has to do something every day. Right. Have you ever had a situation where not necessarily in your current company, but in any of the startups that you've been a part of where you might not have had people that were doing something every day and that were, as I call, maybe dead weight or not contributing what you needed them to do? How have you handled that? And just talk us through an example of that if you have one. I do. It's uh, I won't say which company it is, uh, although the people that were working there will know. One of the other pieces that I like to really think about is when you're trying to scale an organization, right? If you look at the different life cycles of a startup, it usually starts with a few really smart people who come together with a very cool solution to some problem. Uh, or sometimes it's just a cool solution with that hasn't yet figured out what problem it's going to solve. And that typically is a certain type of individual. In the big company speak, that's where you find your R&D, your innovation groups. But when you move from that R&D and innovation into the production side, what you're talking about is you've got to take those brilliant concepts and make them accessible to a much broader group. And people don't necessarily like to talk about it, but the larger an organization becomes, the more it evolves to the average. That's just right. That's human nature. And so ultimately, what you have to think about is how do you bridge that gap between the brilliant concepts to something that can be implemented at scale? And so in one of the startups that we're looking at doing that, you really have to figure out as an organization, how can we evolve? And another problem that happens a lot of times in startups is you get 10 to 30% of the people who might be working 70 to 90 hours a week, which is just, of course, crazy. And then you have the other 70% of the organization that are maybe putting in time, right? Uh, doing the 40-ish hours and not actually supporting the other 
10 to 30% as much as they possibly could. So we actually focused on that. And it's amazing. We didn't change the dynamic that much. We might have changed the dynamic by 10%. Maybe that group that was working 40-ish hours a week evolved to 44 hours a week. But if you think about four hours per person on average across 70% of your company, that's a huge mover. Now, the other piece that comes into that is you can't expect people to do more if you're not going to take care of them. And that's where the people first concepts come back to. Whenever you're asking people to do more, they need to know that you're going to take care of them. And so I, I've had to work through all of those things and I've seen the good and bad. And so particularly here at Sharper Shape, that's one of the things that I really work through with the leadership team is everyone who's working for us knows that if they're going the extra mile, we're going to go the extra mile for them as well. And so can you share with us for people who are listening, who are wanting to be better connected and taking care of their their people? I mean, this seems like it's common sense, but sometimes people don't necessarily know, like, what are some things that I can do to really appreciate my people or, you know, better connect with them so that they feel like they're a valued part of the company? If you were going to give a piece of advice to really move the ball, move the needle in that area in terms of taking care of your employees. Can you share something that you've done that you would suggest other people do? Yes. These are just things I do. I, you know, I can't say for certain if they work for everyone or whether they're perfect. And I'm sure and, uh, others could look and say, hey, there's better ways. And I'm sure there are. There's a couple things that I've been working on. One is I'm a student, uh, although I haven't met him, of Alan Mulally, who was the CEO of Ford and before that, head of Boeing commercial aircraft, chief engineer at Boeing for a long time. And he has a process that he uses, which he just calls the working together process. And the very first item is people first. And then everything else is really about a few key things. One is that there's only one plan that everybody's aware of the plan, that you're communicating, you're treating each other with dignity and mutual respect. You really can adhere to the things that he's outlined. He often says, you can't fix a problem that you don't know anything about. So the fact that something may be red instead of green is not something to get upset about. It's actually something to applaud because now you know what to go fix. Those types of behaviors and embedding that culture into a company really means that people are more apt to identify what those problems are, figure out where those bottlenecks are, and fix them rather than hide them. That's definitely one school of thought that I uh, adhere to and that I try to communicate. The other piece that falls into that is I'm fond of saying no decision is a decision. And a lot of organizations get held up because somebody somewhere in the organization is not making a decision. What really happens is uh, a problem comes up and somebody in the organization will make that decision for you. And so ensuring that everyone in the organization knows how to make those decisions is something which we follow. It's very simple. It's the Objectives and Key Results, a great book out there on it called Measure What Matters by John Doerr. And we, we adhere to that. So every quarter, we look at what our objectives and key results are because I spend my day trying to make sure I don't become the bottleneck of the organization. Maybe that's from my military training. So that if someday I'm not there, we know what we are trying to accomplish. We know what the mission is. And the organization can make those decisions, you know, quite frankly, without me if they have to, or, or any of our other leaders. And so those are the types of things. The other thing that that does is that provides a sense of empowerment for the team because they feel like, hey, if I make that decision, 
I know the company's got my back. So these are examples of things that I that I try to build upon. Sure, I think those are great examples. And as I was listening to you talking about Alan Mulally, so I used to work at Boeing prior to GE very early, earlier in my career. And I remember I was running a program called, a part of a program called Future Combat Systems, which is an army program that ended up getting canceled. But we'd have just like, many programs, you'd have your program reviews and different statuses, and you'd have your metrics and your colors, red, yellow, green, where are you? And I used to hate showing if we had something red or yellow, or it made me feel like I wasn't doing my job, because I didn't have all greens. And really, what I learned in that in that role was it isn't about having everything being green, it's about communicating the issues and the problems and, and getting the help that you need from the the teams, the leadership to fix those problems. And so I really learned early on the importance of driving a help needed culture and making sure that we were flowing things up, but also that my employees, my direct reports, the managers that work for me were communicating up, not just painting a rosy picture just so everything looks great, but if there's issues, let's get into them and figure out how to resolve them quickly. And it sounds like we have similar backgrounds with that and experiences with that. I've been very pleased with that approach. Yeah. And something I wanted to ask you before I transition to your military career, going back to more of an entrepreneurial startup environment versus a bigger company that has a big brand recognition around it, such as a GE. I just want to talk about branding for a second. And as you've been in these smaller companies, how have you really focused on strengthening the brand of the company? Because as you know, when you try to call somebody and you're GE, people will make time for you because you're GE. Right. When you're in a smaller company environment, people may not know who you are. And I'm sure there's people listening that are in these smaller companies that are trying to figure out how do I take my either my company or the company I work for to that next level of increasing our brand value, brand recognition. There's a lot of answers to that question. I think one of the things that where I started when I was trying to figure out how to just in my own education of how do I become a good CEO for sharper shape? There's a lot that I needed to learn about our products, our customers, what it means to be in an environment where you know we go out and we raise capital and all of these things. And so one of the things that I did is I actually went back and looked at the GE network, the friends and others. And I think by having a career where I've tried to myself follow this they do ratio, I could reach out to a lot of my network, some of which I hadn't talked to in years. But it was amazing to see how many people were willing to help just by asking. And so I did. I probably <laughs> reached out to no less than probably 200 people from just the career that I've had, whether uh, some were in, from the Navy days, some from the GE days, some from the Vestas days. And also even from, you know, this is my second startup as an employee. By reaching out, that word of mouth can really spread. And so that's one key thing. The other thing that we've been doing is sharper show, but just listening to our name would be really hard to tell what we do. So what we needed to do is figure out how do we get in front of the right decision makers, the right people that can benefit from our services inside the utilities. And so we've looked very hard at social media, how to not in a way where I, I don't believe in mass mailings and things like that, but if we can influence what shows up in people's social media streams so that they actually see an article that maybe we wrote about wildfire prevention or how to use drones and inspection or how to use a digital twin to better improve your operations. If we can put meaningful information in front of those decision makers, 
those are the ways that we're trying to drive some of that influence to raise awareness, to raise education about the types of things that we do without, you know, quote, being a pest. These are the things that, you know, we have looked at. And then in general, you know, we find ourselves almost every week trying to find some other way to simplify our message because we cover so much of the value chain. So many of the things that we do are technically advanced. You know, we talk about AI engines and we talk about all the different types of neural networks and we talk about software platforms and big data and all this. It's really easy to lose people. And so most days we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how do we simplify our message. Yeah, I think that that's important is simplifying the message and, and being clear so people understand what your brand is about. What I want to do now is I want to transition. We talked about your military career uh, or alluded to you know being in the military. And I think that as a military officer myself, there's so many qualities that you learn being in that type of environment that help you to be successful beyond the military domain. Can you share with us your time in the Navy and kind of what are some of those key leadership attributes that you think have really helped you to be successful throughout your career? Going back to my military career, I, I actually joined the Navy when I was 17. And so I actually joined as machinist mate. So I was enlisted. And when I had joined, I had also applied to the Naval Academy. And, and fortunately, through various ways, got to go there, got my commission, my degree, and then went into the submarine force. And one of the items that differentiates, to some extent, the submarine force or the nuclear community, because there's nuclear surface ships as well, is we do go through some training to make sure that we have a very clear technical understanding of the nuclear reactor, the plant, how they operate, the safety standards, all of those things. But the reality is we get six to nine months of training when we're put on a submarine and they say, okay, new junior officer, you're in charge of this group, go do the right things. And one of the things that you learn very clearly is a reactor operator that's maybe been in the Navy for 15 years knows more about the reactor than probably I'm ever going to know. And so you learn how to understand what the mission is, but to really rely on the expertise of your team. and. That has been, and I guess the other piece with submariners is we tend to have both some amount of depth and breadth. And those who are the most successful have figured out how to balance that so that they delegate properly and we operate the right ways. And so that, I think, has helped me a lot in my career because when I came to Shark Shape or when I came to Sarcos before, just later in the career starting, when I showed up at Sarcos, although I did some robotics in my degree 25 years beforehand at the Naval Academy, I didn't really know anything about robotics. But there were many of the team members who had been doing it for 25 years, and I could build upon their expertise, and together we were stronger. Uh, when I showed up at Sharper Shape, um, I didn't know how to utilize drones and AI and software to benefit a utility. But, you know, I've got people on the team that have spent their entire career doing this. And listening to them, operating with them, getting better together, I think is a trait that goes all the way back to what I learned the first day I walked on that summary. I think that's a great thing that you share because we are all experts in certain domains, but there's a lot of things we don't know. And so we really need to leverage the talents and the intellect and the, the expertise of those around us to really be able to move the ball forward. As I'm listening to you, I was thinking back again to uh, when I first joined GE, I'd come from Boeing, but as you know, 
I had come to join the avionics business and that was not my particular expertise. And I remember my boss, who you know, Jerry Bossler at the time, um, I asked Jerry during my performance review at the end of that first year, I was like, hey, Jerry, what are you hearing about me from other people? And he's like, well, he's like, I hear two things. I hear one, you're not an avionics expert. He's like, two, I hear you know how to get stuff done. Well, how I knew how to get stuff done was because I leveraged the team around me and I knew who to go to, to be able to achieve whatever it was I was you know, tasked to do. And so being able to figure out how to navigate through your team and leverage those people to complement your skill set is such an important part of being able to be successful no matter what business that you're in. Absolutely. So people who are listening to our show are also people who are thinking about, well, how can I get to that next level in my career? You've had a great career, Chris. What advice would you share with people that are trying to reach that next level? I've often thought about what's the difference between management and leadership and what I saw when I was in the military and when I joined the corporate. And I think the principles I've practiced, and I don't think this will work for every organization. I I don't think this would work in the organizations that are highly political. I'll put it that way. But what I've always tried to do is focus on the mission, right? When I was on the submarine, if the ship had to get underway the next day, regardless of the state of maintenance, the focus was, okay, how do we meet that mission? When I joined GE and, you know, it was in the quality group, and originally it was how do we make the quality of these products better? When I was doing the avionics business, how do we do the joint venture in Asia and how do we continue to keep a company like Boeing happy? So I've always focused on the mission and I've done so in a way that I've thought about how does the organization meet that mission, not how does Chris become instrumental in delivering that mission so I can protect my own job. I've never thought that way. As a matter of fact, nine times out of 10, I know when it's time to move to the next thing because I realize I've made myself, I can be replaced. And that's a very military mindset because if you're on the submarine and you're the commanding officer and something happens to you, the executive officer has to stand up and take that position. And I have operated that way my entire career What it's meant is maybe that I haven't always been able to stay in the most comfortable positions after I've worked with the team to create those processes. But it has meant that I've had a very exciting opportunity to do many different things in GE, then with a wind turbine company, then with a robotics company, now with an AI software company. And I think that evolution has occurred because I've always tried to say, what's the mission And how do I make sure the organization can deliver the mission? And it also made it quite clear when it was time for me to maybe think about doing something else. Great. That's a great piece of advice is to really focus on the mission and the team and success of the team. So, Chris, what I want to do now to uh, wrap up our show is I want to take you through my two-minute drill, just ask you seven fun questions. Are you ready? I am ready. First question is, what did you want to be when you were 10 years old? An astronaut. Oh, I like that. Who would play you in a movie about your life? Keanu Reeves. Um. (laughs) That's a good choice. Keanu's a good actor. He's uh, done some great things over the years. How about what is your favorite vacation spot? Most any new place that is safe so that my wife and I can enjoy uh, experiencing new things together. Did you prefer an international destination or domestic or doesn't matter just as long as it's a new place to enjoy and make experiences? Ten towards international. How about what is your favorite ice cream flavor? If you're familiar with Grater's ice cream, it's the blackberry raspberry chocolate chip, which is just phenomenal. 
<laughs> Raiders is a great, I haven't had it too much, but when I was in Ohio, I would try to get it as much as I can. Definitely some good ice cream. All right. How about what is a pet peeve of yours? It's uh, internal politics that do not have a positive impact. I think in large organizations, there'll always be some amount of politics, but those that don't drive a positive impact is, is a pure pet peeve. Got it. How about what book are you currently reading or what podcast are you currently listening to? I have over 500 books. And so this is just a brief sample. Bill Gates' uh, most recent book on how to avoid climate disaster, A Three-Body Problem, uh, which is a sci-fi book, uh, Anatomy of a Spy. but And then I, I highlighted really three of my favorite startup books during the course that we just talked, The Measure What Matters, The Working Together, and then another one is The Four Steps to the Epiphany. I read many in parallel and I many times go back to previous books as well. Those are great book choices and I'll have to check them out. How about the last question is you're hosting a dinner party and you can invite three famous people living or deceased. Who would you choose and why? So I will cover the name and then the why and then hopefully it'll make sense together. Albert Einstein and the reason being because I want to figure out how do you communicate brilliance to the rest of us? The other would be Alan Mulally, who we talked about, and uh, really for why and how you lead change through people. And then the third would be uh, Barack, uh, President Obama, and really how do you incite change? And so that combination of communication, leading change, and generating change, I think, would be a tremendous dinner conversation. Oh, that's a great answer. Great choices, and it makes sense why you'd want those three to be in the same conversation as well. So, Chris, as we look to close the show, any last thoughts for our listeners? Ultimately, I would just say first to you, uh, thank you. I think it's great what you've been doing with Move the Ball and see how far you've taken that. And I think the lesson that I would have for anyone who might be in a large company or in a no company at all thinking about going into the startup world, I would say it's not for everyone. But on the other side, if you have that passion for a product, if you have that passion for technology or a passion for a customer, and you really enjoy thinking about 10 things instead of doing just one thing, you're never going to know if you're successful unless you just jump out there and do it. So uh, I would say, you know, if you have that passion, go for it. Don't hold yourself back. I think that's great advice. And I mean, as someone who came from or left GE to be an entrepreneur, I mean, it's a scary thing to decide to leave, you know, the thing that you've known for your entire life is big corporate America. But the last uh, 18 months have been an incredible journey with Move the Ball. And so, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, if someone has an inkling to do something, then just get out there and do it. And not every day is going to be the best day, you're going to learn a lot along the way. You're going to pivot. You're going to have headaches and question, why am I doing this? And there'll be moments of frustration, but it's absolutely a rewarding journey for sure. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being on the show today. How can people just stay apprised of, of what you're up to? We'll put the, the Sharper Shape website in the show notes so people can follow the company. Um, are you on social media, LinkedIn? What's the best place for people just to stay connected and see what you're up to? I think the website is great, but we are very active on LinkedIn. We're also very active in the utility associations and many of the utility publications. Uh, so if, if you look in those areas, you'll find us. But I'd say probably the most up-to-date and interesting streams are coming through LinkedIn these days. Okay, perfect. We'll be sure to have the LinkedIn link as well as the website in the show notes. And again, thank you, Chris. It's been a great conversation. Really appreciate you being 
on and sharing your insights with us today. Uh, It's a true pleasure. Thank you for the invitation and thank you uh, for all you're doing, Jim. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening. And we will talk to you next time. Until then, make sure that you suit up, you show up, and you move the ball. Thank you for listening to Move the Ball. To see more about what I'm up to and how I can help you to move the ball, check out my website at www.getinsidethehuddle.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode. And also join the Move the Ball Facebook group for even more content and to be a part of the Move the Ball movement.